Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I tend to be kind of a goal-oriented person, and um, it's a little bit of an adjustment for my wife. We first got married because I, I needed to set goals for everything, even vacation. I had vacation goals, right? <laughs> What's the goal? What's the purpose of this vacation? What are we going to accomplish on vacation? So we first had kids. I had, I had goals for our kids, right? My, my first goal for our children was that they learned to hold up their own heads, right? So, uh, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. I, I confess that when each of our children were born, uh, it made me nervous to hold them because it seemed like their head might just fall off, right? You know what I'm talking about. It's just, it's bobbing all around. So I had a goal. I said, they need to hold up their own heads. Well, sure enough, through my coaching and encouragement, <laughs> they learned to hold up their own heads and, and then they, they learned to crawl. And, um, you know, they, they reached that next milestone. And after crawling, my goal was that uh, they would walk. And again, I, I believe that I had a significant hand in this because most kids walk at around 12 months. My kids walked at 10 months, right? We had goals, right? We need to press on. We need to accomplish something. And then they're walking and I thought, gosh, I wish they couldn't move again. But uh, no, no, we got to press on. We have to set the next goal. I set the next goal. They would ride their bikes and learn to ride their bikes eventually, not just with training wheels, but without the training wheels. We could take that off and they could move and they could progress through all of these stages in life. And in each stage, there was another milestone to accomplish, another goal. Graduate high school, I want them to graduate college. I want them to get married. I want them to have a family. I want them to become godly people and love Jesus with a lot of heart, soul, mind, and strength. In short, I want my children to grow up. Right? That's what people do. Whether it's spiritual or physical, fundamentally the goal in life is that we grow up. That we mature. That's the natural and normal progression of human development. In the spiritual life, the Apostle Paul put it like this in the book of Ephesians. He said, God's goal for the church is this, that we would all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature person attaining to the measure of Christ's full stature, practicing truth and love, we will in all things grow up into Christ who is the head. It says it three different ways. It says we need to become mature people. We need to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is, we need to grow up in all things into Christ. It says it a little more succinctly in Colossians. That we proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. Same Greek word, it is teleos. It refers to, to the, the end or the purpose of something. That's the goal. The goal is maturity. Paul says it slightly differently in Galatians. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. And maturity, completion, or the formation of Christ, that is the character of Christ formed in you, reflected through you. Notice the analogy, though, that he uses here with the Galatian Christians. He says, I'm again in labor. I am in labor. I've not personally experienced this, nor had Paul, but I've seen it. And my wife tells me it's a lot like running several marathons in a row, right? It's, It's a lot of work. It is exhausting. Paul draws on this very vivid 
human experience to make his analogy. Spiritual formation, maturity, the formation of Christ in your life, it's natural. It's a natural part of of human life. However, it's difficult. In another place, he'll describe it as striving or fighting or laboring for the gospel. In other words, it's natural and it's normal that we would grow to maturity, but it is a lot of work. It is hard work. Christians, this needs to be the number one goal in our lives. Because, you know, some Christians don't press on to maturity. And that's not right. In fact, that's the problem in the church in Corinth. The the issue is not Paul's concern with their salvation. His concern is with their maturity. They are not moving on to maturity. And so the question I want you to keep in mind as we study these chapters this morning is simply this. Are you maturing? Are you making progress? Not perfection, but are you making progress in your spiritual life? Are you moving on with Jesus? Is more and more of the character of Jesus being formed in your life? And if not, what's holding you back? You need to be aware constantly that there are barriers against your maturity. There is this world system that we described as a a flowing river that wants to carry you along and cause you to love the world more than you love God. There's your own flesh and all of your own desires and longings that are contrary to maturity. There's the devil who would love to trip you up and cause you to stumble and not press on to maturity. So are you maturing? Are you moving on? Let's see what we can learn from the example of the Corinthian believers. Let's begin in chapter 2 and verse 14. Paul says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, because they're foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or discerned. But he who is spiritual discerns all things, yet he himself is understood by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able Because you are still fleshly. Paul describes three kinds of people in this paragraph. The first is what we call uh, the natural man or the natural person. Uh, Literally, it's the soulish person. It is a person apart from God. It is a person who is dead in their transgressions and sins. Dead meaning separated. Their sin has created a barrier between them and God. That barrier has not been overcome because they haven't believed in Jesus. So they are simply natural or soulish, Paul says. They are spiritually dead, meaning they are spiritual people. They have a spirit because that's part of human nature, but their spirit is separated from the spirit of God. God's spirit is not animating them, has not regenerated them and brought them back to life. And so they are spiritually dead or, as Paul describes it here, the natural person second person he describes is the spiritual person. The spiritual person is the one who possesses the spirit of God and the spirit of God is in control of that person's life. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul describes it like this. He says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. In other words, don't be controlled by wine. You drink too much, every cell in your being is influenced by alcohol. So, The way that you think, the way that you speak, the way that you walk, it's influenced by alcohol. He says, let me give you an analogy. Don't be drunk with wine. Don't be controlled by that spirit. Be filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. 
All that you love, all that you think, all that you do, the spiritual person is under the control of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is being reflected through that person's life. Galatians chapter 5, he calls it the fruit or the, the, the product right, of the Spirit. It's love. It's caring more about the other person than you even care about yourself. Wow, that is supernatural. That's spiritual. It's joy and peace. In the midst even of trials, you're grateful and thankful that you're in God's hand, that eternity is secure, and you are at peace. It's patience. Rather than reacting in an outburst of anger or frustration, there's peace and calmness in your spirit. That's evidence of the spirit. There's kindness and gentleness with people. There's self-control. That is evidence that the spirit of God is in control of your life. Not perfection, Paul will say, but progress. Are you growing in the formation of Christ's character in your life? That's the spiritual person. Again, not perfection, but progress. And then there's a third person that we don't really like to talk about very often that Paul brings up here in 1 Corinthians 3. It's called the carnal person or the carnal man. The word for carnal is the same Greek word as the word flesh. The flesh is that that, that bent in us, that, that commitment in us to make life work apart from God. And when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, God's spirit indwells you. You can never be a natural person again. You are now a believer in Jesus Christ. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, every moment of the day, you choose, will you listen to the spirit of God or will you listen to your flesh or that commitment to find life apart from God? In other words, when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, God does not immediately reach down and snatch out your flesh. That's bad news. And so a believer in Jesus Christ can continue to live a life that is dominated by our own sinful desires. Say, wow, well that, that just shouldn't be that way. <laughs> You're right. It shouldn't be that way, should it? That's not natural and that's not normal for the Christian. But it happens sometimes. Notice what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. What you must keep in mind as we're studying this passage this week is that Paul doesn't doubt that they're Christians. He doesn't doubt that they have eternal life. He doesn't doubt that their sins have been forgiven. He doesn't doubt that they're saved. What he's calling into question is their maturity. So notice how he addresses them. Brethren. Brethren. I would like to address you as spiritual people, but I can't. Why? Because you are infants. And usually when Paul addresses his churches and he wants to show them a term of affection, he calls them his children. Now he uses a Greek word that is somewhat derogatory, at least in the moral sense, and he says you are babies, but you're babies in Christ. You are in Christ, but you have not progressed. You have not moved on. Instead, the flesh still dominates flesh still dominates your life, and you should have grown up. The writer of the Hebrews talks about this. He says, for by this time you ought to be teachers of truth, but instead someone's got to go back and teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of the word of God because you're not progressing, right? You're still stuck on the milk of God's word and not the meat. You're not moving on to maturity. Same word, you're not pressing on. Let me give you a couple examples of people that have happened This happened to in their own lives in the Bible. Um, New Testament. There's a man named Demas. 
Demas was one of Paul's co-workers, traveled with Paul for, for years, many years, planting churches, preaching the gospel, discipling believers. Paul mentions him in two of his letters. In his third letter, his, his third letter that he mentions, Demas, final letter of Paul's life, 2 Timothy. At the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says this about Demas. He says, Demas, because he loved this present world, has deserted me. And he's gone on to Thessalonica. Paul doesn't say Demas has lost his salvation. He doesn't say Demas, I guess, was never saved. He says, no, Demas fell in love with the world. Demas got swept along by the culture around him. He fell in love with the world. And as a result, he did not finish well. The lust of his flesh took over. In the Old Testament, talked about Lot last week. Remember Abraham stood on the ridge. He said, Lot, too many, too many uh, people and too much livestock. We need to divide up. Where do you want to go? So Lot took the best. At that time, the, the Jordan River Valley was lush and fruitful. And Lot looked down there. He goes, ah, that's, that's where the money is to be made. And so he moved down. and says he pitched his tent near Sodom. And then as time went on, Lot got a little closer. He pitched his tent a little closer. And then he pitched his tent a little closer. And by the time we see Lot in Genesis 19... He is in the city. He is well-known in the city. He's a leader in the city. He is a part of Sodom. But Peter calls him righteous, right? That righteous man was vexed in his spirit. Why? Because he was a believer. But he was tormented because he knew that the way that people lived in Sodom was not right, and yet he was just so caught up in the culture of that day. Did Lot live well? Did Lot finish well? No, he certainly didn't. Another Old Testament example is Solomon. I feel pretty confident that we will see Solomon in heaven. Right? He wrote three books of the Bible, so I, I think we'll see Solomon in heaven. He, he believed in the Lord, and his faith was credited as righteousness. Solomon's a believer. However, Solomon didn't follow God. Remember, as a young man, God said, ask what you want. What do you want? Solomon said, give me wisdom. So God gave him wisdom, and he wrote Proverbs, and he wrote Song of Solomon, he wrote Ecclesiastes, and you look in those books, and you realize, gosh, this is one of the wisest men who's ever lived. But as his life progressed... He began to not practice what he preached. And so at different periods of his life, he was addicted to alcohol. He was addicted to sex. He had literally hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. He fell in love with wealth and beautiful buildings, horses and chariots. And God said, especially, watch out, do not marry these foreign women, not because they're foreigners, but because they don't love me. They love foreign gods and they will turn your heart away. Well, sure enough, Solomon got older. These women said, no, we want to worship our, our own gods. And so Solomon set up altars for them throughout the city and throughout the countryside. Even he set up altars to false gods in the very temple. And he went with his wives to the temple, not to worship Yahweh, but to worship the false gods. What happened to Solomon? He didn't press on to maturity. He fell in love with the world. And men and women, we miss the point of most of the New Testament if we don't understand that these letters were written to us. Genuine believers in Jesus Christ who are at risk of not pressing on to maturity. The epistles are not written to you so that you will say, oh boy, my life doesn't measure up, maybe I'm not saved. That's not why they're written to you. Nor are they written to you to say, Gosh, my life doesn't measure up. Maybe I have lost my salvation. No, they're written to you, genuinely secure believers. Your eternity is secure if you have just believed in Jesus Christ. But they're written to you to warn you that if you don't press on to maturity, 
you will lose out in this life on God's peace and joy and fulfillment. And you will miss out on the reward that he offers you at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the warning to us. So in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, Paul offers, in a sense, not the, the complete picture of maturity, but he offers three profiles. Okay, three profiles of what it looks like for a person to be maturing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. First, a maturing person longs for more wisdom from God. Right, turn with me again, chapter 2, and read with me in verse 6. Paul says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages for our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Paul says, everything that you need to press on to maturity, God has given you because he has revealed to you his wisdom through his spirit. He has placed his spirit within you. And God's spirit searches the depths of God. The spirit knows the depths of God and the spirit has delivered to you the the deep truth and knowledge of God and who he is and how to progress in maturity. In other words, Paul says, God has spread a banquet in front of you. Eat, eat. Long for it. Hunger for it. And when Thanksgiving comes around every year, I do not eat in the morning. I don't know about you, but I know this amazing meal is going to come. And so I don't want to get filled up on Rice Krispies or a frozen waffle. I just, I just don't eat. Because I want to be really, really, really hungry when that meal comes because I want to eat lots of turkey and gravy and mashed potatoes and stuffing. I want to eat and eat and eat until I'm just absolutely stuffed and full. I don't want to have anything in my stomach so that I can just just get painfully full. Right? I, just, I love that meal. And I love that celebration. On the other hand, if I say in the morning, no, I'm just so very hungry, I've got to get my frozen waffles. And I eat and I eat and I eat a box of frozen waffles. What's going to happen? I'm going to hit that meal and I'm not hungry any longer. Men and women, that's what happens to us. We fill up, we feast on the things of the world and it suppresses our appetite for God. We don't long for and hunger for God. But when you long for God and his wisdom, which here is the gospel, the more you get of it, the more you want it. And the more you want it, the more you get of it. And it just grows and grows and grows. What he's talking about here is is the truth of the gospel. And a deeper and deeper and deeper application of the gospel to your life. He's not talking about moving past the gospel or beyond the gospel, but understanding how the gospel should influence everything in your life. Right? Your your marriage, your your friendships, your parenting, uh, your employment, or if you're a boss... 
the way you use your time and your money. The wisdom that God is talking about is, is getting it, right? Understanding this, this is why I'm here. This is what life is about. I, I get it. You know, periodically I will stop and I will just say, God, thank you that I get it. Thank you that I understand why I'm here. I'm not confused about why I exist. I'm not confused about why God made me. Students, you may be struggling trying to figure out which major you should choose or what, which career path or someone to marry. These are big decisions. But if you know Jesus Christ and you really understand the deep things of the gospel, you know why you're made. And so you know that no matter what job you take or who you marry, you know why you exist and what you should do with the gospel and through the gospel. That is wisdom. You, you get it, right? You get it. For the Corinthians, the first barrier, though, that they experienced was complacency. Okay, they had grown satisfied, and they didn't hunger for a deeper application of the gospel to their lives. Look with me in chapter 1 and verse 11. Let's see why this was. Chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says, I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, this, this is what I mean. This is what you're fighting about. One of you saying, I'm of Paul, another, I have Apollos, another, I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Now look with me in chapter 3, in verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? <laughs> Don't you look like someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God when you are fighting over people? When Christ is all in all? What's going on here? Notice in in verse 4, he doesn't talk again about Cephas. He focuses on himself and Apollos because apparently that really was the dividing point in the Corinthian church. And there was division because the Corinthians valued rhetoric. They valued rhetorical skill. And so they were aligning with Apollos because he was the best preacher. The best preacher of the day. In other words, they cared so much more about the delivery than they did about the content. They were superficial. Now, I'm going to step on toes for just a moment here. Um, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand okay, if, you, if you feel comfortable. First thing, I want to ask you, and this is not a bad thing. The first part of my question is not a bad thing. The second part is where I'll step on your toes. Okay, so... Anybody here listen to podcasts? And it's okay if you do. I'm not dogging podcasts, right? I mean, we have podcasts here, right? Anybody ever listen to a podcast? Some of you are lying because you do, right? Um, you know, okay, we've got a, you know, our, our app and we put podcasts up there, audio, video, which I think is a, it's a great tool. So that's not the bad thing. My question for you is now, and you don't have to raise your hand for this one. Do you spend more time listening to podcasts than you do reading the word? Keep your hand down. Or we'll do an altar call at the end and you can just come forward. And <laughs> hey, more time listening to podcasts than you do reading, studying, meditating, memorizing the word. When you and your friends get together, do you spend time arguing and discussing what different podcasts said? Rather than opening the word and saying, let's discuss what it says in the word and what God's spirit is speaking to us through the word. Are you more concerned with being right and aligning with a particular speaker and his rhetorical skill? Care more about being right and aligned with the person than you do about being righteous. 
having God transform your character. See, this can infiltrate even uh, modern churches where we begin to care more about delivery than we do about content. What Paul is saying here is what a maturing person longs for is they long for wisdom. That is, they long to really understand what life is about and how the gospel should apply to every area of life. Are you complacent? Or is God stirring up your heart saying, no, I've got to have more. I've got to have more. The reward is this. It's wisdom, wisdom, and more wisdom. The more you long for it, the more God gives. If you ask for it, God promises he will always give it. Always. You ask with a sincere heart to really understand why you're here, what you should do with your life. God promises wisdom. And a maturing person says, I've just got to have more. I just can't get enough. Peter describes it like this. He says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into your salvation. How do newborn babies long for the word? Man, that's all they, that's all that's going through that little brain, right? They, they, when they're awake, they're eating. When they're sleeping, they're dreaming about eating. You watch a little baby, they're just, gotta eat, gotta eat, gotta go, gotta grow, gotta grow, Right? Right? And when they wake up and they haven't eaten for, you know, 30 minutes or whatever, it's as if you've never fed that child ever in its life. It's just, I got to have more. I got to have more because everything in their body is saying, grow, 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 grow. I got to grow. Right? I got to grow. But you know what? Growth is hard. Remember when I was 13, 14, I had growing pains and my knees just ached all the time. I was always sore. Growth is hard, people. And sometimes it's easier to stay immature, is it not? My kids have a great life, right? Somebody else goes to the grocery store, somebody else pays for it. Somebody else can cook the food and somebody else can clean the house and somebody else can pay all the bills and and a job when you're a kid is to play. That's your job, right? I need to, this is how I learn, I play. So I'm gonna play, That's, that's your job. And sometimes I think, gosh, wouldn't it be great to go back and be a kid again? But how tragic is it when you see an adult that still behaves like a kid. It's not right. Something's wrong. We need to grow up. That's what God has designed for it for us. And a maturing person says, I got to have more. I got to have more. Second, a maturing person longs for more glory for God through his or her life. Read with me in chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says, you are still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are not, you not fleshly? Are you not behaving just like mere men who do not know God? For when one says, I'm a Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Remember, first century church, Paul and Apollos, that's like, that's like the A team, right? Paul, greatest theologian, not just the early, early church, maybe of the entire Bible, greatest theologian ever. Apollos, probably the greatest preacher that the church had known, certainly to that point in time. And Paul says, you know, when you think about us, here's how you need to think of us. We're, we're servants, as he'll say later, we're, we're kind of like farm hands, really. I've got a role, and Apollos has a role. 
I'm not being falsely humble. There's, there was a place for me and a place for Apollos. But I just did what God called me to do. God gave me a mind. God gave me a body. God gave me opportunity. And so I did what God had provided for. But really, God was the point. It wasn't to glorify myself. Apollos, he had a role. God gave him a role, and he, he played that role. I planted, he watered. But you know what? The field belongs to God. As he will say, you are God's field. And God was the one who all along was causing the growth. I didn't cause the growth. Apollos didn't cause the growth. We just did our little part. And so we're not in conflict with one another. Because what we are, we're servants. We're just servants. Second barrier toward the Corinthian maturity was comparison. They're looking around and they're comparing with one another. They're competing with one another. And so there's jealousy and conflict and strife. One of the most common causes for churches to disintegrate. James addresses it in chapter 3 of his letter. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and there is every evil thing. But the reward of pursuing the glory of God is peace. When I want God's glory, and my friend wants God's glory, then I can celebrate when my friend sees something amazing happen through his life. Because God gave him a body. God gave him a mind. God gave him insight. God gave him opportunity. And so he did his job. He planted or he watered, and then God caused the growth. And so we celebrate God together and what God does through one another. We're not competing with one another. And Paul and Apollos, you know what? They got along. There was no conflict between Paul and Apollos. Paul got along with him. And Paul got along with Peter, right? Most of the time. The only time he didn't was when Peter was screwing up the gospel. Otherwise, he could celebrate. Because the point is God. God is the source of all things. God is the goal of all things. And when together we are pursuing that, then we can live at peace with one another. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Peace in the church. Third, a maturing person longs for more reward from God. Read with me chapter 3, verse 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. That is, they have one goal and one purpose together. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because the day is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. I want you to notice what he says here again in verse 12. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. We're not to get caught up in the specifics of the analogy. Paul is not trying to make a particular point about gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. What he's talking about is different types of material. In other words, 
You invest with your life in a way that is enduring or a way that is not enduring. Because your life will be evaluated as a Christian. And the issue will not be heaven or hell. It won't be salvation or loss of salvation. It will be, did you live wisely or did you live poorly? Did you invest with things that can pass through a fire and be refined? Gold, silver, precious stones. Or things that are consumed by a fire. In other words, did you invest wisely with your life? Okay, a couple questions to help us clarify that. First, where are we investing? Paul uses two analogies, and not unlike Paul, he jumps from one analogy to the next, just boom, boom, back and forth. First, he says, you're, you're a field. You're like a field. And then he says, and you're a building. You're a building. The field and the building are the same thing. Two different analogies, same thing. The field and the building are the kingdom of God. Current manifestation of the kingdom of God is the church. God loves the church. God is building the church. Church is people who know Jesus Christ, no matter what their denomination or background, they believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. And this is what God is building. And Paul says, this is all that lasts. This is all that lasts. The writer of the Hebrews quotes the Old Testament. And he says, God has declared once more, again in the future, I will shake heavens and the earth. I'm not shaking it right now, but someday I will. And I will shake it. And when I shake it, anything that is not attached to my kingdom will fly off and it will be gone. Because only my kingdom will endure forever. So, where should we invest? Certainly not in our own field and not in our own building. Not in building our own Tower of Babel, but in building into what God says lasts forever. So, where are you investing? Where are you investing? Second, what are we investing? What is the gold and silver and precious stones? Well, that is everything that you have and everything that you are. It's your body, it's your mind, it's your skill, it's your time, it's your money, it's your opportunities, it's your relationships. When all of these things are invested in the right place, they are gold, silver, and precious stones. We invest with all that we are. Next week we'll talk more about this when we talk about the stewardship that God has given to us to invest. There's one more element, and that is truth. What we invest, what we use in our lives to make this permanent, lasting investment is truth. Specifically, Paul says, there's a foundation for this building. And the foundation of the building is Jesus Christ. And there is no other foundation. There is no other lasting building. Anything that lasts is built on this foundation, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we invest? Well, we invest truth in love in people's lives. We talked about last week. We share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know how to share the gospel? Do you know how to speak the words of the gospel? Do you know how to take another believer and say, let me help you learn how to feed yourself, which presumes that you know how to feed yourself, how to open the word and really study and understand it and apply it to your life? Do you know how to help someone discover their gifts and their talents and their abilities and put all of those into use for the kingdom of God? Do you know how to do that with your friends and your family members and your neighbors? Do you know how to maybe even cross a difficult cultural boundary and give it to someone else? Because that's what God is about, right? Men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation being brought into the family of God. 
That is a lasting investment. Honestly, that is the only lasting investment. That's it. Fourth, why are we investing? Look at chapter 4 and verse 5. Paul says, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the, hidden, the things hidden in darkness, and he will disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. In other words, what's happening in the church of Corinth is they have just found another place in which they can exalt themselves. God says, well, no, I'm going to test your motives as well. Not just what you're doing, but why are you doing it? It's for your kingdom, your building, your field, your glory, or for mine. Christians, this is a really heavy topic. Why is it so absolutely critical that we discuss it? Because each of our lives will be evaluated by God. Look at chapter 3, verse 13 again. Paul says, Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because the day is to be revealed, or the day will come with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. The day that he's talking about is the judgment seat of Christ. Right in the margin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ that each man's work must be evaluated, whether it is good or, he says in chapter 5, 10, worthless. Okay, every life will be evaluated by God. There are two primary judgments that are talked about in the New Testament. The great white throne judgment and the judgment seat of Christ. Great white throne judgment is for everyone who says no to God. They, they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and at the great white throne their lives will be evaluated. There will be no Christians at the great white throne judgment. But every Christian will show up at the judgment seat of Christ. Every Christian. That's why he says each man's, each person's life will be evaluated. And what's burned up is not the life, right? I mean, not the person. It's the life. It's the investment. What did you, what did you bring to the judgment seat of Christ? Because that day that he's speaking of will be a day that's revealed with fire. It'll be an examining day. So when you see fire, don't always think hell. It's, an, it's a day of, of evaluation. And what you bring to that evaluation is what you invested your life in. So if you invested your life in, in your job, in your career, in your house, in your possessions, in your name, then you're going to stand before God someday and you're going to lay out, here's my life. Here's what I gave my life to, to. Here's what I invested in. And God will say, let me see, how does that work for my kingdom? Whew. Gone. Gone. First John chapter 2, verse 28, he says, Little children, let us abide in Jesus. Let us move on to maturity so that when he appears, we may have confidence when we lay our lives before him and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming because we chose so poorly. Remember, the issue is not heaven and hell. The issue is Christians. Those who are eternally secure in Jesus, did you live wisely? Did you live wisely? There are three kinds of builders that Paul talks about here. The good builder, foolish builder, and then the destroyer. Okay? Three kinds of builders. Verse 14. If any man's work which he has built on it, that is on the foundation which is Jesus... 
If any man's work that he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And what's the reward? Well, chapter 4, verse 5. Each man's praise will come to him from God. I think there's another reward, and that is people. First Thessalonians 2. Paul says to the Thessalonian believers, who is our hope or our joy or our crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Because you are our glory and our joy. Paul says, praise from God, but also standing with people that I have invested my life in before Jesus Christ. And together we celebrate and I look next to me and say, oh, you are my joy and my crown of exaltation. I invested in you. He will even say of the Corinthian believers in his next letter, we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Because we mutually encouraged and built one another up in the faith. And so we are standing together here before God. In other words, what God says is a wise investment is people, 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 people. Because God's kingdom is populated with people. And what lasts? God's kingdom and people. So invest your life in people. What's the barrier? The barrier for them is confusion. And it is for us as well. We just get so caught up in this world that we begin to spend our time in ways that just really has no lasting value. I think sometimes we are are, uh, reckless spenders with our time, with our talents and with our money. Let's talk about next week. We don't really understand the opportunity that we have with our stewardship. We think we have unlimited time and unlimited opportunities. Instead, we're given this short, brief, brief uh, vapor, breath of a life to invest. And then we bring that life before God, and it's evaluated. Did we live well? Did we live wisely? The reward, chasing after God, is his praise and the people that we stand with. Jesus told a parable about this, remember? He said, I, I, I've, I've given a different resources, stewardships to different people and the ones who invested wisely, they come before the master and he looks at their investment and he says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in, in a small thing, in just a few things, that is your earthly life. You've been faithful in a few things, therefore I will make you ruler over many things, enter into the joy of your master. Jesus said, that's a, that's a picture of us standing before God and having our lives evaluated. How amazingly wonderful will that be if and when we can stand before God and present our lives, what we have invested in, and God looks us in the eye, face to face, before the creator of the universe, and he says, well done. Well done. I will tell you, when I I first heard this idea, it literally, it changed my entire life outlook on life. It changed my life. I didn't know, I didn't know where I would live. I didn't know what job I would do. All that I knew was that I wanted to invest my life in things that would last forever. I didn't want to waste my life. I wanted to stand before God and hear him say, well done. And so that's my challenge for you this morning. As we close, I want to challenge you with this thought. Are you, are you complacent? Are you content with where you are with Jesus? Are you saying, no, I got to have more. I got to have more of God's wisdom. I got I to bring more glory to God in my life. He must increase, but I must decrease. I've got to have more. 
I've got to have more reward. I long for that. that. That's not mercenary. This is what God has offered to me. I want to stand before him with people that I've invested my life in and have all of us hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Are you complacent? Are you content? Or you just have this, this sense of, of holy discontent, God stirring you up and you say, got to have more. If you're not feeling that this morning, ask God to search your heart and show you where are you holding back? And where does God's spirit need to break through? As we go before the Lord, let's take a few moments silently and let God's spirit examine our hearts. And then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that only your spirit can break through into our hearts and minds. Give us wisdom. We know that your spirit can do that and, and will do that. Know that you have promised that to us. So I pray, Father, that we'd have hearts that are, are open and willing to listen to the voice of your Spirit. There are areas of our lives where we're we are just wasting time. Your Spirit would make that clear, and we would long for more of you. Father, I thank you that you give us that opportunity. I thank, thank you that you've made it clear to us why we exist, why we live and how we, can ex- how we can invest our lives in a way that l- really matters and matters forever. Father, thank you for revealing that all to us through the gospel of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, next week, uh, 1 Corinthians 4. If I can encourage you, just read that chapter and think a little bit about how God has gifted you, what he's called you to do. What are the stewardships that God has given to you? So put a little thought into that, maybe take a few notes. And next week we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. God bless you. Have a good afternoon.